Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. On this episode, you'll hear dance educator Mary Wood interviewing San Francisco Ballet's wardrobe master George Elvin. This interview took place on April 28, 2017, before a performance of Christopher Wilden's Cinderella. Hope you enjoy. Good evening. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet. I am very delighted to be in conversation this evening with a very dear, very longtime friend, the ballet's wardrobe master, I hope I have got that title correct, George Elvin. So please welcome George. Oops, Thank you very much. It's always a treat to talk to folks who are in the off-the-stage jobs. Uh, we sometimes say behind the scenes, but I guess that's true. But these folks are absolutely as important to what you see as the dancers who are dancing. We made a special point of inviting George this year because it's going to be our last chance to talk to George. George is going to retire at the end of this calendar year. So when you come to see the Nutcracker next year, the dancers will still be spiffy, thanks <laughs> to the work that George and his team do. I'm going to miss you a whole lot, but we aren't going to get maudlin here. We're going to move on to just talking about some of the interesting stuff that you have seen over a 40-year involvement with San Francisco Ballet. So let's, um, I think it's fair to say, how on earth did you get into this business? Well, none of it was planned. It was strictly by accident because uh, my educational background, my degree was in history and political science. And uh, <laughs> when I was at college, I worked in, in the travel business during the summers and any of the breaks. And there was a job waiting for me when I graduated. And I said, I'll give you one year, and then I'm going back to grad school. Well, um, <laughs> I never got back to grad school. I worked in the business in Sonoma County, and then I moved to San Francisco for two years, and I got totally burned out dealing with telephones because it was, it was pre-computers. And it was always telephones of people coming in, and they were high-profit-oriented agencies. So you couldn't just wander off on a free trip somewhere when you felt like it. It, it. it was pretty intense. And I got really burned out by it. To this day, I hear phones ring and I kind of cringe, you know. And I, I knew some people that, that worked for the San Francisco Opera. And um, so this was in July 1977. And um, I had a couple of weeks to myself and I was like, well, what am I going to do? You know, time to get back to the real world or something. And uh, I came down and visited my friends here at the opera. They were getting the season ready. And it was an interesting environment. I mean, I knew a lot about opera. I grew up listening to Metropolitan Opera uh, broadcasts on Saturdays with my little transistor radio in my grandmother's hay barn west of Petaluma. So I was pretty familiar with the arts and uh, especially classical music. So they asked me, they were having some big shows. They asked me if I wanted to be a dresser for, for some of the huge productions they had coming. And I said, sure, you know, nice to get a paycheck. And uh, that was the beginning. <laughs> and I never left this building since. So, uh, and back then uh, with the opera, Mr. Adler was the boss. And San Francisco Opera was one of the top three or four in the world. So it was a real 
wonderful place to start out. You know, it, it really, the timing was perfect. And then from then I was able to work as a dresser for the ballet in December. Oh yeah, December 77. Addressing the party boys in the old, old, not this production or the one before it, but the one before that production of Nutcracker. And um, one thing led to another. In 1981, they, they hired me with a you know, full-time salary or 42-week-a-year salary. And I told them, I said, well, I can't build things. I can't design. They said, don't worry about that. Uh, we want you to manage the department. I said, just as long as you know. So since then, I've had a lot of great people working for me that can do all those things. And uh, they don't want the management position. So it, it works out. It's been a good relationship. <laughs> well, we have... Um, sometimes had the benefit of hearing from the backstage folks about the different roles that you all take. And um, I know we've also talked to Patty Fitzpatrick, who um, is your counterpart, really. The, the work that you do as supervisor, I guess, is, is that fair to call you that? Has, has it evolved since those good old days in the late 70s and early 80s in terms of um, just how has it evolved? Uh, well, the, the company keeps getting bigger and bigger, or, or certainly did compared with 40 years ago, and yet there's still just the two of us. Um, so you get more responsibilities, and if you're smart, you delegate it to some people you hire from time to time. Um, we have a lot more... We're on a higher level now. I was thinking the other day when we started in wardrobe when I started. We had one little old portable sewing machine, a Singer sewing machine, which I still have. Now we have a lot of Berninas. We have overlocks. Uh, we have all kinds of wonderful equipment that the company has provided for us, and they get used plenty. So we do our, a lot of our work in the house now. And the supervisor, you're not necessarily doing the work, but you're responsible for seeing the work gets done, done in a timely fashion and within the budget. Um, and um, so that's been a big change. When I started, Sandra Woodall had a costume shop down on Mission Street, and a lot of the things were made at her shop, and the dancers went down there for fittings. But that's a long time ago, and um, to, we can't even get them to cross the street to come over here for a fitting, so we go over there to them. And uh, we have a lot more sophisticated equipment. It, it, it's a real professional operation now, and... Um, so it has evolved in, in a lot of ways. How on earth do you keep track? You must. Ha how many costumes do you are in the I warehouse? I have no idea. There's probably about six or seven million dollars worth, but it's all up here. <laughs> now we, we keep inventories, but oh, I'm so glad we're still going to get it on to. It still has uh -huh. to get at some point um, into the computer, so somebody can actually get some answers on some of this stuff. It would take you a long time to. To count them, just counting the costumes. And this one time, I came up with, oh, I think it was a little over 200 costumes in Cinderella because they were varying figures. So one day I said, "Okay," and I counted them. <laughs> so it's your job to just know where the costumes are and what condition they're in, and is that fair to say? Uh, that's part of it. For example, we ran out a lot of um, productions. And you may get a call, somebody's interested in renting something, what kind of condition is it in? Is it still serviceable? Uh, they used to consult me on how much they thought we might charge them, uh, things like that. Uh, I mean, every day unfolds, you get a phone call and 
whole new thing happens. Uh, dancers go guesting all the time. Uh, we have, have to provide them with costumes. Um, you have to go out to the warehouse and unpack the things that go back out there, put them away so there's room for the next thing to come in or out. It, it, it's, you're not sitting down very long, often for very long. <laughs> and at least here, I have uh, you know, a lot of people uh, working with me, whereas when we go on the road, it's just two of us, and you do everything, the laundry, um, you name it, you do it. Sewing on the hooks and eyes that get ripped off. You must have, you must, when you say you go into a big house, let's say down in Southern California or the Kennedy Center, you, there are crews that go with each of those large houses. Is that correct? Sort of? Well, uh, with wardrobe, it could be a little bit different because um, I think like with the stagehands, they're generally assigned to a theater mm -hmm. and whatever comes and goes, whereas wardrobe is a little bit different. There might be a house head and then that person will supply you with a number of dressers that you uh, request and some, depends on where you're going, if you're in some boony places, uh, don't count on having really talented people. They're nice people, but they may not be very highly skilled. Or experienced. Right. Right. Um, we know that we could probably share anecdotes until well after curtain time, but um, I wonder if looking over these 40 years, some of the high points, some of the amusing things, some of the challenging things just have jumped out at you. What can you, let's just free associate. Oh boy, well. Tell a story or two. I've been thinking about this today, about the high points, and uh, the, the, there's an awful lot of them. I mean, it's been a terrific ride, but to, to narrow it down, I would say the first one was in 1983 when we had our 50th anniversary show that was emceed by Gene Kelly. And I was still relatively new here, and to be standing five feet away over on that side of the stage, and you're the stage manager, and there's Gene Kelly there, it's like, whoa, this is pretty awesome. Um, oh yeah, and then I think one of the next big events was the United Way Dance Festival in 1995, when we invited like 11 or 12 other companies to be here. It took the most incredible amount of backbreaking work to organize it. And it went, it just went perfectly. Um, and then when they all left, it was like, oh, what do we do now? It was just like you invited people into your home and you took really good care of them. That was, that's always, will always be one of the really highlights of all the time here. One of the things I remember about that was that there, there were companies from all over the world and so languages was a challenge. Um, and you had to communicate with dancers who didn't necessarily speak English. Well, the, the, the Chinese at that time still had their political commissars with them, and you couldn't even take the costumes into the room and wash it for them or anything else without their permission. Toward the end, they finally kind of realized, we're just here to help. So the, but the rest of them, we manage. We have enough people that can speak Spanish uh, for the Cubans and so on. And um, It was a terrific, terrific experience. And then, oh yeah, in, in uh, I think it was 2008, we had the 75th anniversary and we had alumni weekend and we had a, uh, a cocktail party right out in the lobby here. And uh, I had seen, I got the opportunity to talk to dancers I hadn't seen in 25, 30 years, quite a long time. And 
you spend so much time chatting with all these people, you didn't have time to get to the bar to get a drink. I mean, it, it was just incredible to catch up from all those many years. And I'm looking forward to the, the 100th in 2033. I hope they invite me. <laughs> we can count on it. We're planning the 100th. I guess it's not that far away. What are um, we? We're up to 80... Mm, 84? 85? 84. Something like that. Yeah. And then the, the other couple other things, just briefly. We went to China for the first time in 2009, and at the end of a very grueling tour, we had a couple extra days in Beijing, and uh, one of our patrons organized a uh, picnic at the Great Wall, and it was catered and everything, and it really brought you together as a family after a very hard three weeks. And that's something, uh, I have a picture of the the group picture down in the office there. That's something I'll never forget as long as I live. Just to see everybody let their hair down and just, you know, the work was over. Now we can kind of kick back a little bit. And I think this whole year has been a big highlight. I don't know if it's because I'm deciding that this is it. Um, I'm sure that psychologically has something to do with it, but I think this year has been terrific in my opinion. And I'm you know, usually we do ballads like, okay, we're doing this, we're doing that. But about three years ago, four years ago, uh, something's kind of changed for me in some ways. And like when we brought in Cinderella, it was like, wow, this is fantastic. And when we did Hummingbird, I'm sure some of you remember Hummingbird, that second movement of Hummingbird is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, just to watch it uh, from backstage all the time is an emotional experience. And then this year we did um, Frankenstein, which turned out to be, like, fantastic. A lot of it has to, whether I like something, has to do with the music, and that music was terrific. And a lot of young dancers got opportunities to do major roles. It was almost like a Hollywood story, that that whole two weeks of Frankenstein. And then um, Swan Lake... And then finishing up with my wonderful Cinderella here, because I, I got to go to Holland for the world premiere and try to learn everything I could in three days that I was there. And it just brings back memories, not just this production, but of the old production we did um, when the stepsisters were two guys. And uh, I had some great fun in those days, you know. It did. Yeah. I got a lot of great memories. <laughs> that um, brings up something that I thought might be of interest, you talked about going to the Netherlands. Well, the reason for that was that this Cinderella is a shared production, and also Frankenstein is a shared production. And that's got to be a fascinating kind of challenge for the the production departments. So talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, a a brand-new full-length ballet costs an awful lot of money to, to put together. I mean, a terrific amount of money. And so a lot of the idea now is to, is, is to hook up another company for a co-owned production, so you split the costs. And that's great for the bean counters, and it actually enables us to do these things too. But from my point of view, uh, like uh, the Dutch had the uh, ballet before we did. It was built over there. Frankenstein was built over in the U.K. And it comes over here, and it's already been made on their dancers. Um, and we have to fit everybody here, and we have... A lot of different sizes. They have a lot of different sizes. In fact, the Dutch were very big and tall. And uh, so that's the challenge, is to make things fit. 
Fortunately, both of these productions, a lot of extra costumes were made, which, because, you know, some companies, they only have one or two casts. Well, we have four or five quite often. And... Uh, <laughs> Multiplied by their three or four or five. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, so fortunately. And then you have to clean them up, send them back over there, and then they come back here, and it goes back and forth, and um, it, it adds to the wear and tear. Uh, we don't usually have it first because there really isn't any place on the West Coast to build a big full-length production. It'd be very difficult to. Maybe in the future the opera shop could. So from my point of view, at least they're already put together. Now we just have to make it work. For those of you who are, have come in after we started, I just want to say that I'm in conversation with George Elvin, who is currently wardrobe master is that your title well the, the title keeps changing they, they move it around a bit but i still do the same thing so it was wardrobe master then it was wardrobe supervisor and then it was wardrobe manager but it's the head person in the wardrobe department no that's it, it just happened it's just whatever they want to call me as long as they're paying me and uh, and we have um we are facing the fact that we are observing your final season repertory season and but we are Looking forward to the fact that you will do one more Nutcracker, which is cool. Hard to believe. Yeah. Um, in a couple of minutes, I'm going to invite audience to ask questions. There, there is something um, I think it's all, it's we call it the magic of theater. The curtain goes up, and there's this amazing stuff that happens, and it happens because of a lot of fast hard work. The subject of the quick change came up. Um, because it sort of appears in almost every work. And I thought it might be fun for you to just describe for the audience, it's okay for them to have, a, you know, to, to lift the curtain on the secret. What happens when the Swan Queen disappears and in two minutes she's back in an entirely different look? Well, you have, the dresser has to be highly organized, and there may be two of them. And it has to be choreographed, the timing has to be perfect. Uh, and it's basically between you and the dancer as, okay, you remove this while we're doing this. Um, it, it really has to be planned out. Um, we had the old Swan Lake production. We had a change with uh, Rothbart when we combined the third and fourth act, and it was very fast. And most of the Rothbarts, they leave exit stage right to come over stage left. We're in the back corner. You have to take the boots and the, and the pants off and sew on the coat off. And the idea was, when he got to you on the way across the stage, he has the coat off, right? Oh, and the wig comes off, too. And you have one person standing up with the coat that's going to go back on him, and then you have the person down below, because he has a unitard on, underneath, pulling the, taking the boots off and the pants off, and, or the shoes off and the pants off, and getting the boots ready to go on. And it has to happen like that. But we had one Rothbart who loved to wear all these stainless steel rings, you know, part of his persona for the part. Of course, whenever he got over to the other side, he didn't have the coat off. He's still playing with the rings. And it's a little hard to get the coat off when the rings are on. And uh, when he would do it, the, the, from some of the folks who worked for me, after the change, you'd see this kind of glazed look on their face like, Ugh. And then we took the show to Iceland, and I had to do it. And I really understood why they looked like they looked. And sometimes you were a little late on the change from getting to the rock. And we had a wonderful young lady helping me in Iceland. And when he didn't, when he was late, she took it so personally. She came and said, oh, take me off the call. I said, no, it had nothing to do with you. 
you just do the best you can, and, but it has to be planned. And uh, I think, not to promote my crew, but we do a very good job. We've had choreographers come here that had their ballets done in other companies with a quick change, and they were just like, how did you do that? He, didn't, he could change the shirt and everything. That's what we do. It's, a, it, you know, it's great having a challenge. It really is. It brings out the best in people usually. You did mention that there was a, a ballet many, many, many years back where it nearly tanked because of a failed quick change. But oh, We had way, oh boy, 1979, we had a, a ballet called Cyrano's Dream. Choreographer was John McFall, and um, the main character, Cyrano, had to change the color of the costume because at one point, I don't remember the details, but when he had the purpley costume on, he was uh, Cyrano. When he had the gold costume on, he was like a, a masquerading as Christian, something like this. I don't remember the details. All I know is the dancer had to get over there, and the only thing he had to do was unclip the shoulder cape. That's all he had to do, and we could take care of the rest of it. So when, uh, we were in Pasadena, and the dancer got over there, and he didn't unclip it, and we're, he have not got time to look. You put the gold over in this, and he goes out on stage, and here's the purple looking out the bottom, you know, and it's like, uh-oh. And I was young then, and I was very intense, and I saw the choreographer, and I apologized to him. I said, I'm very sorry about this, and uh, we'll, you know, we'll try to get it right. And, of course, the the final performance, it went perfectly, and that was the last time we ever did the piece. So, I bet it wasn't that changed. But when I was younger, I, I took everything so seriously, you know, like, oh, my God, we failed. But... Uh, we still try to do the best, but I'm not, I don't beat on myself as much anymore. <laughs> Let's invite the audience to ask some questions. Lots of hands going up. Let's start with this one right there. It was first. What are you going to go do next? <laughs> well, my last day will probably be about the 31st. You mean at the, when I'm done here? Three days after my last day, I'm going on a four-month world cruise. <laughs> yes. I, I will be returning this day one year from now, so I will miss the whole season. They're on their own. <laughs> That's the best way to do it. Oh, man. Okay, over on this side. Yes, dear. What's your favorite ballet? What's your favorite ballet? Well, you're going to see one of them tonight because there's so much magic. There's so much good old-fashioned theater and imagination in this piece. Have you, have you seen it before? Well, you'll understand when you see it. And um, favorite ballets, that second movement of Hummingbird will always be right up there. From way back, uh, Eternal Idol of Michael Smeughan was one of my all-time favorites. That's a magnificent piece. Um, I mean, that's a few of them. (laughs) And Frankenstein this year, I thought, was... I had no idea what to expect. And I used to not like contemporary-ish pieces, but the music wasn't all that contemporary. And uh, it, was, it worked. All the elements worked together. And it's coming back next year. <laughs> Somebody over here had a... Yeah.
I didn't get the whole question. What's the biggest change? Uh, well, Patty's usually working every night after the show or right before the show, making you know making adjustments. You don't just you know, every day is a new adventure, and, and things do happen like that. And uh, just because we did something last year and everybody was fit in the costumes, things happen. Sizes can change, and uh, it's best even the next year to do fittings again, just to cover yourself. So you're just in the last minute, like, oops. Oh, gosh. Yours. Question is, outside of the uh, explicitly shared co-productions, do you share costumes with other companies? I think you mentioned rentals. Yeah, another big thing nowadays uh, are companies running from each other. Again, saves on the overhead. And we have quite a lot of costumes, and, and the word gets around the business who has what productions. So uh, Western Symphony went out to, I think, Arizona about two weeks ago. And um, sometimes even variations go someplace. Uh, it, 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 it varies, and it's a source of revenue. And uh, you try to give them instructions as to how to take care of them so when they come back they're still in reasonable condition and uh, speaking of responsibilities last two weeks ago I was out to where I was packing up Western Symphony by myself and I thought wow 40 years ago I started I was doing the same thing and I'm still doing it you know <laughs> I guess I must pack it pretty well <laughs> packing up Western Symphony um, okay here yours Oh, talk about the designs for Cinderella. Oh, my gosh. This is going to be embarrassing. Briefly. Uh, yeah, I don't remember his name right now. He had not done Julian Crouch, that's right. And he hadn't done ballet before. And whenever you hear that, you're always like, uh-oh. He doesn't understand movement. But when it was uh, designed and built over in the Netherlands, uh, Dutch National, the people at Dutch National had a lot of input. Uh, the wardrobe boss over there had a lot of input in the design and construction, which was a great help. And Mr. Crouch was willing to listen, which is always good, too. So that helped a lot. He did have opera and musical theater right, experience. But, but ballet is a different ballgame. Yep, yep, <laughs> definitely. We have just a couple more moments here. Yours. Yeah. What is, what's your favorite costume, and which was the most difficult? Good Lord. Um, uh, maybe the old Nutcracker with the, the, the Mother Ginger house, uh, what we went through with the stilts and everything on that all the time, and you hoped he made it back in one piece, which he usually did. Um, no, but that was, not a, that was not an easy thing. Um, Favorite? Maybe that fabulous blue dress in, uh, of the Queen in Sleeping Beauty. It's just, it weighs about 50, 60 pounds. And it is, you, you can do a display anywhere and people just go like, wow, wow. It's magnificent. 
And it's got lots of gold in the lace, as I recall. Oh, yeah, jewels yeah. and gold and everything out the wazoo. I mean, when it was made 20-some years ago, it was like 5000 bucks. No telling what it would cost nowadays. But we have a lot of beautiful things, but that, yeah, that's terrific. And Sleeping Beauty is coming back next year. So when you watch Sleeping Beauty and you watch the queen in the blue dress, you can remember that it's George's favorite costume. <laughs> We have run out of time. I have just had this wonderful time interviewing, exchanging anecdotes with my old friend, George Elvin. And we're going to, the whole ballet community is going to miss you, but we're going to be really grateful for all of the work you've put in and for all of the time and for all of your love. So thank you all. Enjoy the performance. Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. For more podcasts, educational programming, or other information, please check out sfballet.org.